Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Is everybody ready for 2 Peter chapter 3? That's where we're going to be tonight. So last week, all of chapter 2 was related to false teachers. The character of false teachers, the nature of false teachers, what they were doing. And so now he is going to address that a little bit. But basically, chapter 3 really concludes with an encouragement to live holy lives in light of the second coming of Christ. Okay? So let's look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Scoffers and the day of the Lord. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Let's, let's read this together. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. That's why it's called Second Peter. Beloved, in both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay, verse 1, he says, I want to remind you, I want to stir you up to reminder. This is my second letter to you. I'm going to give you some teaching here about the last days, the second coming. And he says, listen, in verse 3, scoffers are going to come. Those are going to come. Scoffers are going to come. People, false. he's still talking about these false teachers. These false teachers, these scoffers are going to come during the last days. And we talked about this last week. When did the last days begin? The last days began when Jesus went back up to heaven. So the last days have always been going on until Jesus comes back. We're just closer to that than we were yesterday, okay? So even during the time that Peter's writing this, he considers himself to be in the last days. And there's, like we said last week, there's always going to be false teachers. So there's going to be scoffers, there's going to be false teachers, there's going to be people coming, and especially because the Lord hasn't come back yet, they're going to make a big deal about that. And that's kind of what he's going to go on to talk about. But 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Are we not seeing that today? Demonic teaching. Now, think about your conscience being seared as like an iron. It means that you've gotten so numb, so hardened to the truth that you, you no longer have a conscience. It, it doesn't bother you. And these false teachers are at that point where they're not even bothered by what they're teaching. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7 through seven also talks about what's going to happen in the last days. But understand this. 
that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people, now I want as we read this list, guys, just ask yourself, is this, does this characterize the world today? Okay. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth." What does Peter say in verse 3? Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, what were they doing? Basically, here's what was going on. Since Christ had not yet come back, back then and even today, they were perverting the teaching of the second coming to say, Jesus is never going to come back, so live however you want. Or they may have said, His coming is a long way off, so live however you want. In other words, don't worry about impending judgment. Don't worry about the day of the Lord. Live however you want to live to to indulge your uh, sinful passions because that's all that matters. And here's their argument. What were they arguing? You have to kind of read this a little bit carefully. In verse 4, Peter says what their argument is, what these scoffers, what these false teachers are saying. How are they perverting the second coming? Verse 4, they will say, well, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, what's what's his argument? What's the false teacher's argument? The fathers here are the patriarchs, Abraham Isaac and Jacob. So basically, the the false teacher's argument would go something like this. Ever since the beginning of time, things have been going on pretty much normal. And since things have gone on pretty much normal since the beginning of time, they're going to continue to go on normally. So God, basically their argument is God's never really intervened in time to deal with his creation. Now, let me just ask you a question. Having read the Old Testament, what, do you, what would you say to a false teacher that said, you know, basically everything's been the same since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's never intervened. God's never, you know, come into the world to, to do anything to judge. What was his argument last week? Remember he talked about Sodom and Gomorrah and he talked about the flood. Okay, so Peter's going to launch three counter arguments. Peter's like, okay, if that's your argument, false teachers... If your argument is God's a distant God, God's never going to come back, pretty much the world's kind of on cruise control, let me give you three arguments to counteract that. Let me debunk that false teaching. So Peter's going to launch three counter arguments to this faulty way of thinking. And here's argument number one. It's in verse five. Argument number one, in verse five, he argues that God actively created the universe through the power of his word. What does he say in verse five? They deliberately overlook this fact. Who's they? The scoffers, the false teachers. They don't even understand a major fact. The heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. 
What's Peter's argument? Of course God has intervened into his creation in the very beginning of creation. He created the heavens and the earth through his word. So what is Genesis 1, 1 through 3? Why does Peter talk about water? Notice what he says there. The earth was formed out of water and through water. Genesis, I don't know, don't tell me how this works, okay? Because number one, nobody was there. So if you have a good argument of how creation happened and you are proof positive, you need to be very careful because none of us was there. We, we can go by what the scripture says and we can guess. But look at Genesis 1, 1 through 3. It talks about water. In the beginning, okay, God created the heavens and the earth. God created. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, I don't know if the earth was like a water, like a chaotic water ball that God created first. And then he added light and everything. I don't, I don't know exactly how it works, but it talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. The point is, Peter's point is, I mean, we can get into a lot of minor discussions about the creation. His point is, God created the universe by the power of his, what, word. Okay, so Psalm 33, 6. The word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. The Bible is very clear that God created by speaking, by his word. Um, Colossians, and, and not only does God create by his word, God sustains everything by his word. What is Colossians 1, 17? Actually, Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things in the universe. So atoms, participles, quarks, gravity, everything in the universe holds together because Jesus makes it hold together. He sustains everything. Hebrews 11.3 By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So Peter's first argument is very basic. He says, listen, don't believe these false teachers because from the very beginning, God actively created the universe by the power of his word. And if God started it, God will bring it to an end in his timetable. What was their argument? Things are going on. Don't have to worry. Live however you want. There is no end times. There is no second coming. If it is, it's way far away. Just live however you want. And what's Peter saying? If God started it by his word, under his sovereignty, he's going to bring it to an end under his sovereignty. Okay? And then Peter says, okay, if that's not enough for you, let me give you argument number two. This is in verse six. Argument number two, Peter reminds his readers of the flood. Okay, if there ever was God intervening in his creation on a major dramatic worldwide scale, it's the flood. What does he say in verse six? And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged or flooded with water and perished. So the flood, Peter's saying, is powerful proof that God did in fact intervene in his world and he brought universal judgment. Okay, the flood was not a natural disaster or some fluke accident of nature. The flood was God's active wrath to purge a sinful world. So Peter argues, number one, God intervened in creation. Number two, God intervened in the flood. 
okay? But here's argument number three. Okay, that's past, right? Peter's arguing from past to future. In the past, God created the heavens and the earth by his word. In the past, God flooded the earth. Now Peter goes towards future. If God did this in the past, then you can trust that God's got a plan for the future because he created it. So here's argument number three. You can find this in verse 7. In, in verse 7, Peter argues that God will actively work in the world to bring about the final judgment through not water, but fire. Okay, so look at verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, that now exist, are stored up for what? Fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now, the question is, why, if God judged the world with a flood in the past, why is he not going to judge the world in the flood in the future? Well, we don't have to guess. He promised it to us. So if you go back to Genesis 9, 11 through 13, after the waters recede, he makes this universal covenant with mankind and gives the sign of the rainbow. Genesis 9, 11 through 13, God says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So God says, at one point, I judge the world with a flood, with water. But the Bible all through says future judgment is not going to be through water, but through fire. Even the Old Testament talks about fire as judgment. So we got a couple of verses like Isaiah 30, 30. Some prophetic passages in the Old Testament. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen and furious anger and a flame of devouring, devouring fire with the cloudburst of storm and hailstones. Sounds like Revelation, right? Hailstones and fire. Okay, that's, that's Old Testament. Okay. Amos 7, verse 4. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire. And it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. So future judgment by fire. Okay, what's the argument of the false teachers? Where's the second coming? If God promised it, why isn't it here? Why isn't it here? Why hasn't Christ come back yet? Why are you believing the second coming stuff? He hasn't, I mean, things have been going on and on and on and God's kind of distant. It's kind of like he, he set the universe in motion and he's hands off and things are just going to kind of wind down. So if that's the way the world works, live however you want. That's their argument. And Peter's going to address why has God delayed on God's timetable the second coming. So let's go to verses 8 through 10. The patience of the Lord. Peter is going to talk about why God has, in our minds, delayed. Now, we're going, to, we're going to get into the deep end of the water here tonight, okay? It's our last Wednesday night. I'm going to challenge your thinking. You can agree to disagree with me, and that's perfectly fine. So I'm going to challenge your thinking, okay? So verses 8 through 10, because these are controversial. God's, Peter says in verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, 
in a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, I want you to notice something. Back in verse 1, how does he address his audience? What word does he use back in chapter 3, verse 1? What's, what word does he use? Your translation may say, dear friends or beloved. Okay, okay what does he use back in verse 8? Beloved. Okay. Dear friends. Okay, so he's talking to believers here. Okay. Now, he's going to allude here to Psalm chapter 90, verse 4. Psalm 90, verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Don't overlook this fact, beloved. To God and God's timetable, one day is like a thousand years. Okay? Now, we've got to be real careful here. Peter is not being literal. He's not saying one day is literally a thousand years, okay? Because why, why do you know he's not being literal? What does he say? Read the text carefully. One day is, my translation says as. Yours may say like. He's making a comparison. He's basically making a metaphor. He's basically saying if you can think of an infinite eternal God who created all things, who's outside of time, to him... You know, for us, we are so time-bound, are we not? And as time-bound creatures, what do we tend to get? God doesn't get this, but we get this. What do we get when things don't work out in the timing we want? What word do we use? We get impatient because things aren't moving the way we want them to move. I want it done yesterday. Okay, That's our human limitations. We're very impatient. We're very time-bound. Peter's saying, listen, God's outside of time. He's not bothered by time. He doesn't get impatient with God. One day is like a thousand years. So here's the thing we need to understand. God is eternal. He is outside of time. He's not bound by time. He created time for us as humans. Now, it's hard to think about. Space-time continuum. Here's the question, theological, philosophical question. Does God experience time? No. God creates time. God is outside of time. God sees all time at once. Yeah, yes, Dick. I understand what you're saying, but I think if there was a time in the incarnation when he subjected himself to yes. time. Yes. Yes, yes, and so you're bringing up even another theological issue that in the incarnation, an eternal God took on the limitations of being born of a virgin and took on the limitations of time. But that was only the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. We can't wrap our minds around an infinitely eternal God. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, pretty much like nails it for me. Um, 
Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God. There's none like me. What does God do? Declare the end from the beginning. He declares it. Not he foresees it. Not he guesses. He declares the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel will stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So what Peter's addressing here in light of this false teaching of these false prophets and scoffers saying, okay, where's God? Where's God? You keep talking about a second coming. He hasn't come back yet. Peter's addressing our impatience as humans in God's sovereign delay of the second coming. Now, what do we as humans, and I know you want, you want to know this because it's all over the internet, what are especially evangelical Christians fascinated with when it comes to end times and second coming type stuff? What do we want to know? We want to know when. We want to know all the juicy details. We want to know, okay, when's Christ coming back? What's the signs that he's coming back? We want to know all the juicy details. But do you want to know something? Not one New Testament writer ever gives us when. They just tell us he's coming back. They never give us a lot of detail as far as when. We do know that Jesus will return imminently, which means what? He could return at any time. But we also don't know when that is. So, we, so that's a tension for us, right? What's the tension for us? He's going to come back, but we don't know when. And, you, and, and we can get, these scoffers, are, these scoffers are, play, are preying upon the impatience of us as humans by basically saying, okay, look, he's not coming back. He's not coming back. And their excuse is what? Since he's not coming back, what's their excuse? Go send your heart out. Don't have to worry about the imminent return of Christ. Don't have to really worry about it. Things have been kind of going on. Go engage your sensual pleasures. Because go back, look, look at verse 3. I mean, I'm going back to the argument that, that verse 3 says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own what? Sinful desires. All of chapter 2 was talking about these false teachers and how they were enticing people to follow their sinful desires. And so Peter's answer is, listen, there's a reason why God is delaying the second coming, according to his sovereign timetable. Now, this is where we get into a division between two different views of this passage of Scripture. So I'm going to present to you both views. And of course, I land on one view, so I'm going to lay my cards out there. Not, I'm not going to try to tell you I don't land on one view. But I'm going to try to show you both views and walk us through verse 9. Okay? What does verse 9 say? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is what? Patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay. <laughs> This passage of Scripture brings up a tension between God's sovereign decree of predestination 
and God's desire and, and people's um, coming to faith in Christ using human responsibility. Okay, that, that's the tension here. Who's the audience that Peter's addressing? So here's the question. The interpretive question you've got to ask is, the Lord is patient toward you. Who's the you he's talking there to? Believers. Believers. Now, how do we know it's believers? Who is God patient toward in the second coming? He calls them beloved. Now, in the immediate context of... Okay, so what I'm teaching you guys here is how to do a little bit of intercontextual Bible study. When you come across words like you and all, and you've got to figure out who's the you and all, who, who's he talking about? Okay, contextually, what did I just show you? What does verse 8 say? Do not overlook this fact, beloved, dear friends. Okay, so in the immediate context, just a few verses up, he's addressing beloved. In verse 1, he says, I'm writing to you, beloved. Okay, what did we talk about th- two, three weeks ago when we started this? Chapter 1, verse 1, go back to chapter 1, verse 1. Who's the um, original audience? I mean, how he starts this entire letter? Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We talked about how that word obtained a faith in the original language means that God has sovereignly chosen to give faith to those by grace through faith alone, through the imputed righteousness of Christ. So contextually, contextually, when Peter says God is patient towards you or y'all, the plural, he's talking about God's people. He's talking about God's elect. Now, does not the Bible talk about the patience of God? All the way back in the Old Testament, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him, this is Moses, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the Old Testament, what I call the Old Testament credo. It's like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. That is repeated twice in the Psalms. It's repeated in Joel. It's repeated in Jonah. I think it's repeated in Micah. All over the Old Testament, it's this whole idea that the Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. Joel 2, 12-13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. That sounds like repentance, right? With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. So Joel says, listen, repent, repent, repent. Why do you need to repent? Because the Lord is gracious. The Lord is slow to anger. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you presume upon the richness of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. So here's Peter's argument. Before we get to the difficult part, let me just give you the overall argument. The delay... This is the, the, before we get into the theological difficulty, let me just give you the main point you need to understand. The delay of the Lord in the second coming is not an excuse for people to go sin, but it's an excuse for them to repent because God has not come back yet. Because what happens when Christ comes back? It's going to be too 
late. So God is delaying the second coming of Christ because he's patient. Now, the question is, we have God wishing. Does anybody have a different word besides wishing? He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to, re- to repentance. God wishes that any should perish, not wishes, but that all should reach rep- repentance. Okay, here's the question. Here's the theological question. Who is the any and all in this passage? Does this refer to all people without exception or to all people without distinction? Mm-hmm. When, when was Christ, when was Paul, Paul was, I mean, when was he elected? Well, he turned in time, but when was he called? In time. In time. Yep. Um, does this give us an idea of what's going on here? I mean, yeah, yeah. is it the, uh, not wanting anyone to perish, any of the elect? Yes. Yeah, that the what you just said is the one view. God is patient with his elect, not wishing that any of the elect perish. That's the view I hold to, but but I'm going to give the other view because the other view says God has a desire for all people everywhere to repent. But here's the theological question, guys, okay? I want you to think hard about this. Look at the word there. God does not wish something. Here's the question. If God has a desire, or God has a wish, or God has a will, for all people to repent, all people, and we know from the Bible that all people don't repent, here's the logical question you've got to ask. Then does God... Then does somehow God's will get frustrated or not accomplished by sinners who thwart His will? (coughs) My question is this. (coughs) Excuse me. I'll probably ask it again, but I'll ask it right now. If God wills something to happen, will it happen? If God wills all, all people everywhere without exception to repent, and all people everywhere don't repent, then somehow God's will has not been accomplished. And the question you've got to ask is, okay, what frustrated God's will in making sure that it didn't happen? And that's where the two groups come. So let me give you interpretation number one. Interpretation one of this passage of Scripture, I know this is the deep end of the water, so interpretation number one. God wants or God desires or God wishes all people without exception everywhere by their own free will not to perish but to repent. That's God's will. In this view, God desires something that invariably will not happen unless you're a universalist and believe that everyone will be saved. Okay? Interpretation number two. God's desire is in harmony with His eternal decree to save all men without distinction and desires that the elect will not perish and they will repent. 
So you got, I don't like to use labels, but you got a free will view and you got a sovereign of God view. And that's how both of these views have been, how this passage of scripture has been viewed throughout the ages as far as how you interpret it. Let's look at this a little bit closer, okay? And then once we get done with this, I'll, I'll maybe um, answer some of your questions. So first to the question, let's just look at the word wish. What does the word wish mean? Does anybody have a different word besides wish? Not wishing that any should perish? Does anybody have a different word? Wanting. Not wanting. Okay, so we've got a word wishing. Okay, I don't know if wishing, wishing kind of sounds a little weird to me. I don't know, not wanting. Does anybody have a different word? Wishing, wanting, not willing. Let's put another word, not desiring. Okay, it's, there's one Greek word that's used there, okay? But before we look at the Greek word, what, is that, what do these words in, in, imply? If God wishes something, if God wants something, if God wills something, if God desires something, what's the question you've got to ask? Does God always get what he desires? Or does God's wish, does God's will, does God's desire somehow get thwarted? The word in the original language, the word there in the Greek means plan, will, or to sovereignly intend. I mean, actually, you could probably translate it, not sovereignly planning, not willing that any should perish. So it's not simply a wish or a desire by God. It means God wills for this to happen. God wills that not any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Okay. Now here's the theological problem. And maybe you've never thought about this, but I'm going to introduce it to you tonight. In interpretation one, if God desires or wishes or wants all people, everywhere, without exception, to be saved and come to repentance without exception, the question you're going to ask is then why do some people not, why do some people not repent and why do they perish? If it's God's will for something to happen, then what God wills does not in fact actually happen because we know the Bible teaches that not all people will be saved. Now, let me give you their answer, okay? Or do you want to attempt to answer what their answer is to that? What? No. Their argument is God's will is to give people free will so that they can go against His will. That's what, that's what they would say. So God desires all people to save. He desires them to be saved and repent so much that he's given them free will so that they can either choose to accept or reject him using their own free will. And so God wills something that won't happen because part of his will is to give people free will to counteract what his will is. Now, I'm trying to confuse you. Okay? So here's the, here's the theological question we've got to answer. Is God's will, does it happen or does it not? Can we stop God's sovereign will from happening? Okay. Then we're going to get into different types of will. I didn't want to go down this path, but there's two types of will. Let me just stop and address that. Okay, there's two types of will. These are not in your notes, so you may want to take notes. Okay. When the Bible speaks of God's will, we have two types of will. 
We've got will of God's will of what we call will of command, and we've got God's will of decree. Um, let me put it a different way: God's will of um, this may be called His preceptive will. This is called His sovereign will. Okay. So the Bible, in a sense, talks about two ways in which God wills something to happen. Okay? Let me give you the difference between these two. The, the, the whole last, like, ten weeks before we started Second Peter, what did we study? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are God's will of command in the sense that He has given us what His will is commanded for us to obey we're responsible for that okay that's his will of command any type of command you see in the bible that you can know you can read you're responsible for that's the will of command my question is this is god's will of command always obeyed you got to say no so god's will of command can be broken all the time by people in their sin that don't follow his written revealed will that's his will of command. What he's told us clearly, we are supposed to do. There's another type of will of God. His decree, his sovereign will. This is the will of God that he sometimes does not tell you what that is. It's an eternal decree. It's a sovereign decree. It's what God is going to work out behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. Question, does that will always get done? Yes. Can that will be frustrated? No. Do we know what that will is all the time? No. Are we responsible for knowing that will? Will we be held will we be which which will of which will will we be accountable for on the day of judgment? The will of command or the will of decree? The will of command because God's given it to us. Now, God works in time. So God's made an eternal decree. Okay, before creation before God even created the world, he made an eternal decree of what was going to happen in eternity past. And in time, he works out that will. So like what Dick was saying, we know from the Bible that in eternity past, God predestined or chose people to be saved. But when you're born, you're not automatically saved, are you? What has to happen to you? You have to be called you have to be regenerated you have to believe so there there comes a point in time where something god did in eternity past doesn't actually come to fruition until it happens in time does that make sense so when we're talking about god's will here back to the text what kind of will is peter talking about is it god's will of command or is it god's will of decree Or is it just a desire that God has that doesn't get fulfilled? That's the third option. We can cross off the will of command. God's not, God's, not saying I'm command, God's not saying this is a precept that I'm setting out that you have to obey. So you either have, it's God's eternal decree that none should perish. And if that's the case and people do perish, and somehow his eternal creed did not get fulfilled. Or the other option is to say, it's simply just a wish of God. God wishes this to happen. God wants this to happen. And, and it doesn't happen. And so God's frustrated in the end because it didn't happen. 
I don't know of any other choice you could use unless you guys can help me think of a better choice. Uh, Dick, what were you going to say? That is a will of command. Yeah, it sounds like it. That's a will of command. That is a command from God that's binding on all people. Now, will all people repent and believe? No. The question then becomes why? You got the two camps. One camp will say people don't repent and believe because they chose not to repent and believe. The other camp says people don't repent and believe because God did not choose them to repent and believe. But that's a will of command. Even Jesus in Mark 1, what does he say, 115, Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's a will of command. So there is a responsibility binding upon humans to repent and believe. We're responsible for that. What this is talking about here is God's desire or God's will that something happens. And what's God's desire? That nobody perish. Do people perish? So does God desire something that happens? So you're going to have to figure this out. So let's, yeah, you're going to have to figure it out. So let's just talk about God's will of decree for a moment here. Let me give you some verses about God's will of decree that that the Bible teaches that God's, I believe God's will of decree is going to happen um, because God sovereignly will accomplish that. So Psalm 33, 8 through 11. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. That that sounds pretty like God's going to get done what God's going to get done. Psalm 135.6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heavens and on earth and the seas and all the deeps. Um, I already looked at Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. We won't read that because we already did that. Uh, Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Daniel 4, 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So here's my question, and you be the judge. Again, I don't, you don't necessarily have to agree with me tonight. You, you, you may just be the first time you've been exposed to this. You may be processing it. I'm just trying to introduce you to think theologically. Question, if God wills something to happen, will it happen or not? If not, what is it that prevents His will from happening? The answer given by some is that human free will thwarts or prevents God's will from happening. And so some people would say, okay, we have a problem here because God wills something that doesn't happen, which means that somehow his will has been thwarted by human decision. Now, We can go into a lot of the deep end here, but 
let me just give you the bottom line here, okay? And then we can maybe discuss, um, just for the sake of time. Regardless of how you take verse 9, regardless of how you land on it, the main idea is this. Since Christ has not come back, there is still a time for lost people to repent. And it's never an excuse. God's sovereign... Okay, here's the thing. God's eternal sovereign decree is never an excuse for us not to pray for lost people, for us not to evangelize. So we are to preach the gospel indiscriminately to all people and urge them to repent so they can be saved. Regardless of what you view about election, regardless of what you view about predestination, regardless of what your view is, whether you believe somebody comes in by free will, whether you believe somebody comes in because it's God's choice, what's the one thing that the two have in common? Nobody is saved unless they hear the gospel and they repent and believe. So our responsibility is to share the gospel with every single person. Go to all tribes, tongues, and nations, and peoples. Go into the villages of India. Go to all the places we go to share the gospel with all people and urge them to repent and believe. Okay? Question. How much time do we got? Okay, we're good on time. Questions on that difficult topic before we move forward? I didn't want to try to confuse you, but I did. should give me a great deal of, of reassurance to know yeah. that he will never fail to accomplish what he says. Yes, sir. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's my son, Aiden, trying to call. I'm in the middle of class, Aiden. Um, so that's a good point, Dick. And here's the thing. We will never be able to explain God but he has created us to worship him. I mean, we will understand God to the best that we can, but we will never fully explain him. But he has created us to worship him, and we can deeply worship him. And so I think it's important for us to remember even what Paul said in Romans 9. I mean, you may not, you may not like the argument in Romans 9, and you may not like what God does, but... Paul basically in Romans 9, um, verse 20, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What is molded? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Um, we may not like some of the things we come across in the Scriptures. We may not understand some of the things we come across in the Scriptures. We may have to mull them over in our heads. We may have to think deeply about them. But one thing we can't do is we can't stand in judgment over God and say, I don't like the way you created the universe. Um, now, we may come to different conclusions based upon how we understand Scripture, and I think there's freedom for us to understand Scripture differently, especially on some of these um, different topics. Now, are you guys ready to move on to... Verse 10, 
Good? Okay. Peter says, even though God is patient and God is delaying in his timetable the second coming of Christ so that sinners can repent, there is going to be an imminent return of Christ. And what does he say in verse 10? The day of the Lord will come like a thief. So anytime you guys hear the day of, like, okay, anytime you hear the day of the Lord or the second coming, to me, those are all the same terms. The day of God, the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ, the second coming, I think he's all talking about that same event. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 20, 42 through 44. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So do not believe anybody that sets times and dates. Anybody that says, I know exactly when he's coming back. Because he's going to come like a thief when we do not expect it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-4, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Okay. Now, Peter's going to describe three events related to this day of the Lord. He gives us a little bit of detail, not a lot. So, number one, he says the heavens will pass away with the roar. The heavens will pass away with a roar. I don't know exactly what the roar is. I don't know if it's just the sound of like when God destroys things, it's the... Or some scholars have said the roar may be the sound of the trumpet. I don't know. The heavens will pass away with a roar. Um, Isaiah 34.4 talks about this. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll and all their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. That's why it is well with my soul, didn't it say? Lord, haste the day when... Um, and the sky will be rolled back as a scroll. That's where it comes from, Isaiah here, when the sky will fold back. I don't know exactly what that all is going to look like. Number two, he says the heavenly bodies will be burned up. The heavenly bodies will be burned up, the elements. That could be sun, moon, stars. I don't know exactly what that all is. But here's the thing that he says. Number three, the works of sinners will be exposed at the final judgment. Anybody here have a King James? Because it works off a different translation. Um, does, anybody, does everybody have something about their works will be exposed or their works will be shown or their works will be found out at the end of verse 11, 10? Does everybody have something that says something like that? Found out, disclosed, laid bare, exposed? Okay. The ESV, the New American Standard, the NIV... Um, all of the newer translations go off older manuscripts where it talks about things being exposed. The King James, since it goes off newer in time manuscripts, it, it uses the word will be burned by fire. The point is, is that on that final day, there's going to be some type of an exposure or judgment. The lost people, their deeds will be exposed. Okay. Now, let's get to what Peter says here. I hope we could finish here tonight. We should. In verses... Um, 11 through 18, 
Peter's like, okay, this is how you ought to live now. It, all right, don't listen to the scoffers. The Lord's patient. The second coming is coming. So in light of all that, how should you as believers live? Okay, so let's look at verses 11 through 18 to the end of the book. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, and we agree with you, Peter, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Verse 11, since all these things are true, in light of the fact that Christ is coming back and the world's going to be destroyed and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, what type of people ought you to be? Do you follow the scoffers and live however you want and live in in licentiousness and live in sin and, and live as if it's not coming? Or do you live in righteousness and holiness? And he says, you ought to be a people living lives of holiness and godliness. Very similar to what he said in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 14 and 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So holiness is what we are. I keep dropping my lid. Holiness is what we are to be. Now remember, back at the very beginning of 1 Peter, what did he say? Verse 3, chapter 1, His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So Peter's saying, listen, you've got the grace of God working in you to sustain you to the end to give you the power and the ability to walk in holiness. And these false teachers are going to come to you and they're going to entice you and they're going to say, listen, there's no such thing as a second coming and if it is going to come, it's going to come way off. So live however you want. But we have a responsibility to wait for the day of the Lord. What does verse 12 say? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. I love Titus 2, 11 through 14. Because it ties this all together. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to do what? What is God's grace training us to do? renounce what does renounce mean say no say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age while we're doing what verse 13 waiting for our blessed hope what's the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior jesus christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works 
Peter says, or Paul here says, listen, as you're waiting for the second coming, live godly, upright, holy lives. And God's grace is going to give you the ability to be able to do that. Peter says the same thing. God's divine power is giving you everything for godliness so that as you wait for the second coming, you can live this life. And Peter says, listen, everything's going to burn away. And there's going to be, in verse 13, what does he say? According to his promise, we're waiting for what? The new heaven and the new earth. The new heaven and the new earth. This was prophesied back in Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. How does Revelation end? Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now here's another theological difficulty. Just read carefully. What does verse 10 say? I'm sorry, verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. He's talked a lot about fire, hasn't he? So here's a theological question that's been in church history. What's this going to be? So here's the theological question that there's two views. Will the earth be totally annihilated and burned up, like cease to exist, and God's going to actually recreate a brand new earth? Okay, so planet earth, where we're on right now, totally decimating like Death Star, Star Wars, destroyed, and God's going to destroy, create a new earth for us to live on. Is that what he's talking about? Or will this earth, like the flood, be purged by fire so that it's disfigured, so it's destroyed, but it's the same earth, and God refashions or renovates the current earth? That's the big question. Okay, In the early church, there was a big debate. Justin Martyr argued for annihilation. It's going to be destroyed. Irenaeus, who was another church father, said, no, it's renovation. There's a, a lot of disagreement. In Protestant circles today, okay, the Lutherans are about the only Protestants who believe that the earth is going to be destroyed and it's going to be a totally new earth. Presbyterians, Baptists, most evangelicals hold to the view that the present creation that we live on now will be renovated. So when it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, it's not a brand new heavens and a brand new earth. It's a renovated earth. Now, how do we get that? Why do, why do we believe that? Or maybe you don't believe that. What are, what are some of the, the scriptures that do that? Okay, Matthew 19, 28. Uh, Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus speaks of the renewal of all things. That word also means regeneration. So if something's renewed, is it recreated or is it regenerated? Acts. 321. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets to restore. Okay. 
Second, let me give you the, the, the main argument here from the Greek. Second Peter 3.13 and Revelation 21.1, when it talks about new heavens and new earth, the Greek word used to designate the newness of the new cosmos is not naos, but kainos. The word naos means actually brand new or new in time. The word kainos means new in nature or new in quality. So let me give you an example. If you were to go to Walmart tonight to get a gift for your child and you bought them a brand new bicycle that wasn't there before, that bicycle would be in the Greek naos. It's brand new. But if your child has a bicycle that's been old and dilapidated and you take it to the bike shop and you get it fixed and you get new wheels and you get new spokes and you get new chains and you, get, you, you paint it and it looks good, it's new, it's like brand new, that's kainos. It's the same bike, but it's new in quality. So that Greek word kainos means new in quality. So that's why most scholars believe it's probably the same earth, but it's just going to be a renewed earth, a regenerated earth. Okay. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It's going to be new. So how God does it, Dick, were you going to say something? We do believe in the resurrection of the body. Yeah. It will be a new body like Jesus, but it's still going to be a resurrected body. Yeah, your body. Yeah. Uh, I don't care if you cremate me. Mm-hmm. It will be you, wherever your remains happen to be, <laughs> whether they're, you know, yeah. So Peter says, in waiting for the day of the Lord, he wants us to be blameless, spotless, without blemish. What does he say there in verse 14? Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Okay. Holy and blameless. Here's the beauty of what God does in the life of a believer. In eternity past, God predestined us to be holy and blameless. What does Ephesians 1, 4-5? Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? Holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So in eternity past, God planned for us to be holy and blameless. In the present, we have a responsibility through God's empowering grace to make every effort to grow in holiness. And God will work in us to be that. Colossians 1.22, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. In the future, we have the hope that on the final day when we stand before Jesus, he will present us holy and blameless before God. Jude 24. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So the only way we can stand holy and blameless and at peace before God on that final day is because of the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us as a gift this makes us acceptable before God, and we are in a permanent position of being not guilty. You don't earn this position. You don't 
somehow make yourself holy. It's given to you as a gift. So positionally, you are holy before Christ because of His blood. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, in verse 15 and 16, Paul's going to, I mean, Peter's going to address Paul. This is where you get into something really interesting material. This is the only time, maybe there's another that I'm not aware of, where a <coughs> apostolic writer of Scripture references another apostolic writer of Scripture and talks about his letters and not his own. Now, Paul often talked about, my, in my former letter, Peter says in my former letter, what's Peter saying here? Paul in his letters. Now, so, interestingly, Peter references Paul's letters. And somehow, these false teachers, these scoffers, were distorting Paul's teaching probably promoting a reckless type of living because, you know, I could just bank on God's forgiveness. They probably took Paul to the extreme. Paul teaches grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone. Paul teaches eternal security. Paul teaches that, you know, God's grace is powerful. So if God loves to forgive, you might as well just send your heart out because, after all, he's just going to keep forgiving you. Is that Paul's attitude? Did Paul teach that? No, because we got Romans 6. What did Paul say in Romans 6, 1 through 3? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in, great, in sin that grace may abound? By no means. We who have died, we who, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So what does he say here? Um, verse 16 as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Peter's like, there's some things Paul writes that are a little hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destructions as they do other scriptures. Now, what letters of Paul was Peter referring to? We really don't know. But since the immediate context of Peter, who's Peter is writing to, are Gentiles in Asia Minor, some scholars believe that it could be that same audience in that same general area. And the only audience in that same general area that Paul wrote to would be the Ephesians and Colossians. So it could have been Peter was addressing the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians that these people were, were twisting. But I want you to notice something. What does he refer to Paul's writings as in verse 16? Scripture. He doesn't call them letters. What does he call them? Scripture. So what's very striking is that Peter, who was a living apostle, recognized Paul's writing as authoritative Scripture. Interesting. Now, we're going to come to the conclusion of the letter. And Peter has two final commands for us that kind of 
Command 1 deals with the second chapter of Peter. Command 2 goes back to the first chapter of Peter, of Second Peter. So everything that we've looked at, everything in chapter 1, everything in chapter 2, Peter's going to bring to a close here. So what's the, the first command? The first command is negative. And we find that in verse 17. You therefore, beloved, so he gets to the very end, therefore, in light of everything that I've written, here are my final two things I want to say to you. First of all, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Beware of these false teachers. They are real. I spent all chapter 2 talking about these false teachers, Peter's saying. I talked about their modus operandi. I talked about their character. I talked about what they do. You need to be very careful that you don't get carried away by their error. Carried away. What comes to your mind when you think about being carried away? When we were in high school, we used to go to 11 Mile Reservoir, which is kind of a little bit outside of between Colorado Springs and Woodland Park and out on Highway 24, and we would go inner tubing. So we'd take these inner tubes and stop at the gas station there, and we'd fill them up, and, and we'd float down the, the little river there. And it was fun. You could play with it. Like the otters would be like going back and forth. Well, one time we turned a corner, and it was like early in the year, and there were some major rapids. And my brother got carried away to where he almost drowned, and he, he got stuck on a rock, and we had to go out and try to try to save him. But when I think of getting carried away, I think of, okay, you're on this nice little like lazy river at Waterworld and everything is going good. And next thing you know, you're, you're carried away by the waves. You're carried away by the stream. You're, you're fighting and you can't get out. That's what Peter's saying. Listen, make sure you don't get carried away by what? What does he say? The error by false teaching. Paul says the same thing. It's amazing how Peter and Paul really play off each other. In Ephesians chapter 4, 13-15, Paul says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about, carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who's the head, Christ. How do you start to get carried away? Do you get carried away or does it start slow? Well, some people you can immediately get carried away, but for a lot of people it's... That's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2.1 says this, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift, drift away from it. So Peter says, listen, there's a danger of false teachers. And they're really perverting the gospel. They're basically teaching a gospel that says, live however you want. There's no consequences. Bank upon God's grace. And by the way, Jesus isn't coming back for a long time, so live however you want. That's basically the attitude they were adopting. And Peter says, don't get carried away by that. Because you'll lose your stability. Now, he doesn't say you'll lose your salvation. He says you'll lose your stability. If you're carried away, do you lose your stability? Yeah. Those who are truly saved, we looked at this last week, will be guarded and sustained by God to the end and will never fully nor finally fall away from the faith. 
Okay, so you're not going to, if you're truly saved, you can't lose your salvation. You may have a temporary time of instability, temporary time of wandering, temporary time of drifting, a temporary time of getting caught away. But if you're truly one of God's, he's going to bring you back. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. God's going to sustain you to the end. He's faithful to sustain you to the end. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Okay. So command number one Peter ends with is don't get carried away by error. Now here's the flip side. Here's the very last thing he wants to tell us. Command number two is positive. What's the last thing he tells us? It's there in verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Now, two words there. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Now think about that for a moment. How do you grow in grace? I thought grace is what got you in. I'm saved by grace. I don't have to worry about it anymore, do I? I think you grow in grace by two things. Understanding your identity in Christ and preaching the gospel to yourself. The two best things you can do for your growth in grace is to know who you are in Christ and to preach the gospel to yourself. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1, 3-6. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Notice what he says here. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel has come to you. Yes, indeed, in the whole world, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So the gospel is bearing fruit in Christians' lives. How does, how, do you, how does the gospel bear fruit? You remind yourself of the gospel every day. You remind yourself of who you are in Christ. What is God's plan for you as a Christian? In Romans eight twenty nine, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Our goal as Christians is to daily through the gospel through understanding who we are in Christ to grow more and more to look like Christ, to be conformed. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with an unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Transformation or being conformed to Christ, or growing in grace, however you want to say it, comes by spending time looking more intently at Jesus. You behold Jesus. Now, what does it mean to keep looking at Jesus? 
Does that mean we stare up into heaven and try to see him in some mystical situation where Jesus appears to you in a dream? No, we behold or intently look at Jesus by first of all reading the scriptures. We also behold him by praying to him, coming each Sunday to hear the gospel preached to us. We behold him when we take the Lord's Supper. We behold him when our minds are being renewed, transformed. That's why Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what's the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And this inner transformation should always lead to outward obedience. In other words, affections for Christ lead to action for Christ. And here's something I say a lot. The more we look at Jesus, the more we begin to look like Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus or fixing your eyes on Jesus, the, uh, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Grow in grace and knowledge. What does he say there? Grow in the grace and Knowledge. Now, these work together, but he uses both words. So how do we grow in the knowledge of Christ? Well, I think it's the same way. You immerse yourselves in the in reading, meditation, memorization of, of scriptures. Colossians 3, 16 and 17, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And then he ends with the doxology here. To Him be glory. Okay. Now, I'm going to sum up. As, you, as we think about, we've spent three weeks on Second Peter, three chapters each week. I think there's five main themes that I want us just to, in summary, what are the five big ticket items in Second Peter? Here's what they are at least according to the way I understand the book. Number one, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, so by His grace we should be diligent to grow in Christian character. That's the first half of chapter one. He's given us everything we need. Second half of chapter one, number two, we should pay attention to the written Scripture as light shining in a dark place. Hold fast to Scripture. Read the Scripture. Let the Scripture be your guide. Okay, that's the end of chapter 1. Number 3, and this is all of chapter 2, we need to be extremely aware of the character and practices of false teachers who destroy the truth, distort the truth and destroy the faith. Be discerning. Be aware. Okay, 4 and 5, this is what we talked about tonight. Chapter 3. In light of God's patience in the day of the Lord, we should see this as an opportunity to tell people to repent and trust in Jesus while we as believers live godly and holy lives in anticipation of Christ's return. And then last but not least, what we just looked at, number five, by God's grace, we should always be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus instead of having a stagnant, lifeless relationship with Jesus. Thus ends our study of Second Peter.